You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. everybody doing? Good, good. Man, I love coming here, just hanging out, singing praises to Jesus, then opening up the Word. So if you have a Bible, grab it. Uh, If you have your phones, turn it on and uh, open up to 1 Thessalonians 2. I don't know uh, how many of you are science nerds like I am, but I love... uh, researching things about creation, about our world. Um, I love science. I love seeing how God has orchestrated things. I don't know if you've researched much about the Earth's axis. Does anybody know anything about the Earth's axis? So we, um, we spin around an axis of 23.4 degrees. And this is important because it is truly what sustains life on earth. It gives us these moderate seasons so that there are no hot spots. It's responsible for our day and our night, our 24-hour period. It impacts the cycle of temperature and humidity. Our sea levels, they rise and fall depending on how the earth rotates. I mean, truly, our axis is important for a habitable earth. I mean, we've got certain planets that have zero tilt on their axis, and and the center of the the planet is completely hot, and then the the, uh, the polars are ice cold, and then, and then you've got some that are at a 90 degree angle, and then one side never sees the sun. And so truly, our axis is important to us having life. And the God of the cosmos, the God of the universe, spoke that into being. I mean, he set us on our axis and, and started spinning our world in a way that could sustain life. God has also created each human for a purpose, and that purpose is to center their lives rotate their lives around something. And that's what we're going to see here in 1 Thessalonians 2. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to pray for us. And then we're just going to dive in. And if you're, you've been with us for months and years, you know normally I like to have some really clean points, right? Three points and then a conclusion. Uh, today, we're going to just take a journey together through this passage because I think there's so much importance to what God is saying here through the Apostle Paul. So, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 12. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhort each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Man, there's so much goodness here, so let's pray and dive in. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy who your spirit pressed in on to write these words to the church in Thessalonica. And I pray, Lord, that we would hear these words and then that we would be able to apply them to our own lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So let's start with verse 9. Paul is saying something pretty unique here. He starts off by saying, For you remember, brothers, and it could also be sisters, our labor and toil. For we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel. I love this. I think there's something so beautiful about co-vocation and non-vocation, leaders and pastors sharing the gospel. This truly is what every single believer in Jesus is called to, to go therefore and make disciples, to go share the good news of Jesus. But I want to just talk about for a minute how that's not the only way. I think some people will read this verse and then have this mindset or this understanding that, that pastors should not get paid. They would say, oh, see, Paul said he's not getting paid, so no pastor should get paid. Well, that's actually, it's not actually the case in the whole of Scripture. It's, a, it's both. There are some times where Paul is advocating for pastors to, to get paid, and there's other times where he's saying that, they, that they've worked and toiled and labored, and, and they didn't take anything. And so, as we go through this, I want us to see that there are these passages, right? The Bible speaks about both of them. Luke 10, he sends out 72 disciples to go out and make disciples. He says, bring nothing. And then as you bring nothing and in your going, he says, let the people who you are ministering to provide for you. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.18, a worker is worth his wages. Then Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4, advocating for the church to support him and Barnabas in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 14. And he ends with this, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, for some reason, in this passage, in verse 9, Paul shares this because he wants nothing to hinder the Thessalonians from knowing Jesus. He doesn't want them. I think this is maybe a culturally appropriate thing that he's saying. And I think even in our context, we have a lot of churches that have abused this. I mean, we see on the news these pastors that are driving private jets and doing all these things about health, wealth, and happiness. And if you just give, then you're going to be blessed. And that's not the gospel. And so there are pastors that abuse this. And so then all of a sudden we think every pastor abuses this. 
You know, my family, we had the joy and the blessing to serve this church family. We started it nine years ago in our home. And for eight years, we have been able to not take a salary from the church and just serve this church through God providing through a business that God started for me through real estate. And so we didn't have to take a salary. So I look at this and I'm like, yes, amen, because we saw the joy of what it was like to not have to take a salary from our church family and that God provided for our family outside of the church family. It it brought us joy. It grew our faith. It enabled our family to minister the gospel in places I never would have been able to. I rub shoulders with inspectors through, through selling houses, with, with title companies, with other realtors, with clients that I could sit and pray with and pray for because of the work I did outside the church family. And then in this season, God has also allowed the church to provide for our family. And so I'm looking at this going, yes and amen, and also there are other times and other seasons that God is providing through different church families. And so we don't look at this and we say, it's a one and only, this is the only thing it's saying. We look at the whole of scripture and we say, God is good. And there are moments for God to raise up leaders that are co-vocational and bivocational and lay vocational. Our leadership team are guys that don't receive anything from this church. Steve, AJ, Ed, they just serve our body through their love and their faithfulness and volunteering. And so we get the opportunity to look at this and say yes and amen. But I would like to ask the question, why? Why is Paul sharing this? Like, it's more than the what. You got to look at the heart behind what Paul is saying. Throughout verses 9 through 12, we see that Paul is speaking about this parental relationship and role as leaders. What we see is that throughout life, good parents, they sacrifice, they provide, they exhort, they challenge, they encourage their children. That was the mindset of Paul going into writing this, helping them understand that we came to fully serve and encourage and challenge and exhort your church family for the glory of God alone. And so they worked day and night striving to provide an income just so that they could provide for those that God has placed in their care. Now, I know that some of us sit in this room and we have a difficulty when it comes to us seeing God as our father. And I think the reason is, is because some of us have had really bad experiences with earthly fathers and earthly mothers. Maybe you experienced abuse. Maybe you experienced harm or pain or abandonment. And so when the Bible speaks as God is our father, I think often for some, it could raise up these feelings of then God is distant or God is going to abandon me or he is going to abuse me because of what my earthly parents did. I just want to say this. If that's you today, if you're struggling with seeing God as your father, I want you to to listen to this. Louis Giglio says it this way. God is not the reflection of your earthly dad. He is the perfection of your earthly dad. John Piper says it like this. 
Jesus encourages us to pray by showing us that our heavenly father is better than our earthly father and will far more certainly give us good things than any human father would. Seeing God as our father is so important to our faith. God adopts us as his children in spite of us. It's, it's not that we have earned his adoption, but he adopts us while we were still enemies. He provides for us a way to salvation. He provides for us and sustains us in our lives and in our world. And he invites us to go, therefore, and make disciples. And so just as he has given us life, he invites us to go, therefore, and extend that invitation into life to others. And then we get to be spiritual parents to those that we are discipling. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I have received the grace of God. I understand who God is. And so now I am replicating that to the world around me. It's overflowing out of my life because of what God has done for me. And, and now I get to, to see those that are around me as my children in the Lord. So there's an investment here. And so as we're reading this passage, I want us to see this, this beautiful picture of Paul and Silas and Timothy as spiritual parents challenging and encouraging the Thessalonians. And what is the challenge? What is the thing that they are trying to get at? Like, if you had, like, you know, sending off your, anybody send their kids off to college? Raise your hands. Right? You know that last moment? That's that really hard last moment where the tears are welling up and you're getting that thing in your throat, that little like knot, right? And your stomach's churning. And there's one thing that you have to say, the last thing that's like coming out of your mouth before they go into their dorm room or, or start getting in their car, right? That, that thing. This is what he says. As the picture of a spiritual parent, he says this, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Man, there's such weight and beauty in that phrase. But often I think we can read that and misunderstand it. Because what it's not saying is, is it's not saying you must live worthy so that you are called into his kingdom. Catch that. It's not saying you have to earn the favor of God so that he then calls you as his child. But what is it saying? See, we need to be students of the words and we of the word and we must let scripture interpret scripture and know the context. So let's break this down. Look at these three Greek words that form this sentence that Paul is saying. He says it like this. He says, "Walk in a manner worthy of God." But this means something. So there are these three words that are going to come up on the screen. There we go. And I couldn't pronounce those if I tried. Neither can any of you, right? So we're looking at that, and we're like, okay. So they all have a meaning behind them. Paul is writing in Greek right now. And, and we're, we're looking at this, and often in, things get lost in translation, from one language to another language. And so we're looking at this and we have to go to the original text and see how it was written and see why it was written to see what it's saying. So the definitions are gonna come up underneath it. So first, we have this word, to walk. This is where he says, walk in a manner. The definition here is to be, rotate comprehensively around, go full circle. So the first part of this word is the comprehensively around, and that intensifies the second part of this word, which means to walk properly, walk around. 
So there's this rotating around in a complete circuit going full circle. That's what he's meaning by walk in a manner. And then he uses this word worthy. Well, what does this word worthy mean? A-X-I-O-S. Worthily. It means a worth that matches value. This word is actually used a handful of times in the New Testament, a lot by Paul, once by Peter. And it means to be viewed in light of becoming something. There's a worth that's attributed to something. And so now that the worth is attributed to that item, it becomes infinitely more valuable. Did anybody ever collect like baseball cards or uh, kids' Pokemon cards are pretty, pretty hot right now? Um, anybody? Nobody. No collectors. Okay. Does anybody still have them? I still got the box up in my attic. It's great. Um, right? So growing up, there were these baseball cards. They had pictures. It was football and different sports, and they had pictures of the athletes on them. And, and what you would do is you would go buy a pack. And as you were going and buying a pack, you would then filter through them, and there was this book that told you how much these cards were worth. And so you would be flipping through these cards, trying to find the numbers to correlate to the make and model and all that stuff. And, and then finally, you got to the place where you found out how much the card was worth, and sometimes they were worth nothing. Most of the time, they were worth nothing. But every now and again, as you were flipping through these cards, a card would pop up to be worth, and this was big back then, like $5, $10, maybe even $50. Do you know what that did? It changed how we handled that card. It changed how we treated that card. All of a sudden, that particular card went into a plastic sleeve, and that card from the plastic sleeve would go into a hard case that was plastic. And then you would put that in a special place because you knew it was a special card. That card had worth. It had value. The other ones we would take and we'd put in our bike tires. And then as you were going, the spokes would make it sound like a motorcycle. (laughs) That had no worth. But then there was something that had worth and it was infinitely more valuable. So, This word here, worthily, doesn't mean now you have to earn your worth. It means a worth is now attributed to something. Well, interesting. To rotate comprehensively around the worth that has been given, the value that has been given, by what? The last word. By God. God is the one that attributes worth to the item. So now our value has a worth the same as his value because he adopts us as his own. He adopts us as his children. So now all of a sudden, I don't know if you understand how like family units work, but, but as an adopted child, you become an equal heir to the estate. You, now everything that belongs to the parent belongs to the child. You get his kingdom. You get his glory. You get his worth. That's what the gospel is. When we talk about good news, you were once an enemy of God. Now you are a child of God. If he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, now you are a prince. You are a princess. And everything that belongs to the king belongs now to you. You get worth assigned to you. Because of what God has done for you. And so there is this encouragement 
this idea, this picture to rotate your life around the axis, which is Christ. The axis is constant, immovable. The axis is what gives life. And we get to just rotate our lives around the axis in which is Christ. That's the beauty of this picture. That's what Paul is trying to get them to understand and see. So now there is another option. We can rotate our lives around the constant axis of Jesus. And the Bible says that in that there is life. Or we can rotate our lives comprehensively around ourselves. You know what the Bible calls that? Selfish. Another word for that is pride. Now, that word pride comes up in Scripture often, but, but Paul actually, uh, every now and again, uses this word to articulate pride. He uses it in 1 Corinthians and Colossians. And the, the Greek word is physio, P-H-Y-S-I-O-O. And you know what it means? To be puffed up or overinflated. <laughs> so... I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the whole thing. At some point, I'm going to need some help. (laughs) Overinflated. Empty. This is what this word pride means. To be puffed up. When we center our lives on the axis of self. Me, I, if, if our lives are centered on that, the idea is that we exist in pride and we exist rotating around the axis, which is this balloon. Emptiness, overinflated. A life that is constantly living in pain and hurt and turmoil because we were not created to sustain our own access. That's not how God created us. God didn't create us strong enough so that we can rotate our lives around ourselves and actually survive. And the consequence of us rotating our lives around the axis of self is eternal damnation, it's death. That's what God says to Adam and Eve way back in the book of Genesis. Way back in the book of Genesis, he says, do not eat of these trees. Why? Because then you will surely die if you think that you can be your own God. That's what Adam and Eve were doing at that moment. They were saying, I want to survive. I want to live my life apart from God and his plan and his direction and his axis. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do whatever I want. He says, don't do this, but I'm going to go do it, and I'm going to eat it so that I can have the knowledge of good and evil, and I can be like God, and then we become overinflated, and we begin to rotate our lives around self. And the promise to rotating our lives around self is death. It is destruction. But the promise is if we keep our lives rotating around the axis, which is Christ then there will be life and it will be sustained not by us 
but by him and his power. Because otherwise, we have nothing. And so when Paul, as this parental figure, is coming in to the Thessalonians, and he's seeing how they're living their lives, he's looking at them and saying, I see you often dabbling over here, trying to figure out and understand what it means to do this, but then you're also trying to do it on your own. You know the problems that arise in your life? You know uh, the work problems, the marriage problems, the parenting problems, the the neighborhood problems, the relationship problems, uh, the sin problems, the addiction problems. You know the things I'm talking about? Okay, so what we try to do is we try to manage those things by ourselves, figure it all out, conquer it, and then go to God and be like, hey, sorry about that. Oh yeah, you know, like for some reason we think we have to clean ourselves up before coming to God. We think we need to figure it all out before coming to God. But here's what the picture is, is that Paul is trying to get the Thessalonians to understand. You can't figure it out. You can't do it on your own. You weren't meant to do it on your own. And so the encouragement here is to live in a manner rotating your life comprehensively around the axis, which is Jesus. Center your lives on him. Does that mean that the problems go away? No. Does it mean that you're going to live perfectly in health, wealth, and happiness? No. But what it means is you have a secure foundation, an axis that is immovable, an axis that will never be set off course. And in it, you will receive life and life to the full. In it, there is joy. In it, there is peace in the midst of the storms. So in our lives, a hurricane may come, but that hurricane doesn't throw the axis off. In life, an earthquake may come, but it doesn't crumble the axis. That is what Paul is getting at here, and it's such a beautiful picture. So we have two options. Rotate our lives around ourselves, pride, emptiness, unstable, ungrounded. It's going to bring us death and destruction. Or to revolve our lives around God, constant, firm, strong, will bring joy and life. Now look at verse 12. We exhorted each of you, challenged each of you, encouraged each of you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Rotate your life comprehensively around the axis, which is God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I love this. This is is so cool. Calls here is a calling, a purpose, an identity. We, as broken sinners, as those who try to surround ourselves and ground our lives in ourself and pride, surrender all that we have, and we begin to rotate around his axis. This gives us identity. This gives us a seat at his table. We share in his glory. We participate in his victory. We're about in a week to, to have a game play on TV called the Super Bowl. And... In the Super Bowl, there will be a winner and there will be a loser. The winners will get a trophy. They will get a Super Bowl ring. They will get bonuses. Like, 
The win will bring about, the victory will bring about a trophy and, and a ring and a bonus and all this other stuff, all these accolades, right? Do you know that it's not just the 53 players that are playing the game that actually get all that stuff? They actually receive, the team receives 150 rings to give out to staff members, to coaches, to trainers, to, to, to people that are on their practice squad. Like, like the whole team gets it. They get attributed the victory. We have to understand that when we're looking at this text and we're seeing what it says where he calls us into his own kingdom and his own glory is that we as his children who have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ and surround our lives and rotate our lives around him as our axis, we are invited into his victory. So that's not a future thing. That's a present thing. Right now in this very moment, even if you don't feel it, Right, Because some of you are in here today and you're feeling very burdened. You are sitting here feeling like you have lost the game. And I want you to know that if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, his victory has already become your victory. Like you sit here not as someone who is broken and deflated and sitting on the ground, but you sit here in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on his firm foundation. I don't know if you can't cheer and clap for that. I don't know what we're going to cheer and clap for in this place. You get the trophy. You get the ring. You get the bonus because of your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Not because you've earned it, but because he has already claimed and won the victory. He's done that on your behalf. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to invite Christian to come back on up, and Christian's going to start playing. And we're going to take a time to engage with this victory. The Bible gives us communion as a beautiful picture of what it means to be invited to his table. So towards the end of Jesus' life, he's hanging out with those closest to him, and he has a dinner. We know this as the Last Supper. And in this dinner, he stands up at some point and he takes some bread and he breaks it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we take communion, what are we doing? We're participating in the victory that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, knowing that when he rose from death to life, we too now have life in him and we look forward towards eternity claiming his victory, knowing that we're gonna spend eternity in life with him. And so we take the bread and then we dip it in the cup. And what is this cup? This cup that Jesus said is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He did all the work for the victory. And you get to come forward because of his invitation, because of his calling, because of his sovereignty. You get to come forward and you get to participate in his victory and share in his victory. This is the beauty of communion. And so what do we do in this time? We sit before him. Maybe you are like this balloon and you have just centered your life on Jesus, or on yourself. My request 
would be that in this moment, you confess. And what confession is, is an opportunity to go to God and say, I'm sorry. And so just like I let go of the balloon and it went all over the place, we have to let the sins that we carry and the pains and the hurts and the burdens, we have to let that go. And I know that sometimes it's hard because we don't know where we're gonna land, but God invites us to lay it all at his feet and receive his victory through the beauty of communion. And so you sit and you confess and you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for where I fell short. I'm sorry for where I sinned. I'm sorry for my addiction. I'm sorry for my pain. I'm sorry for my bitterness. I'm sorry for my hurt. And then you receive his forgiveness and you receive his victory. So when you come forward, you're coming forward as a victor. And you take the bread and you dip it in the juice as an act of worship unto the Lord for his name and for his glory. Making the commitment once again that you will center your lives around his axis. This is a remembrance of us centering his, our lives around him as our axis. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that you gave us thousands of years ago as an example where you took bread and you took a cup and, and you shared this with those closest to you and somehow that story has been passed down from generation to generation to generation to where we now get to participate and remember what you have done for us. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone right now here that has not placed their faith and their trust in you, that is still living their lives centered on themselves and their pride and their arrogance, God, I pray that they would be able to release that to you in this very moment. And maybe, just maybe, them coming forward to take communion would be their first act of faith in you, trusting you as their axis. God, if there are people here today that are struggling with addiction, with hurt, with pain, with bitterness, with anger, God, I pray that they right now would lay that at your feet through the power of your Holy Spirit and that they would come and partake in communion walking in your victory over those things. As we keep our heads bowed, there is a prayer that I read this morning for myself that I want to read over us. This comes from the Valley of Vision. It says, life-giving God, quicken me to call upon thy name, for my mind is ignorant, my thoughts vagrant, my affections earthly, my heart unbelieving, and only thy spirit can help my infirmities. I approach thee as father and friend, my portion forever, my exceeding joy, my strength of heart, I believe in these as the God of nature, the ordainer of providence, the sender of Jesus, my Savior. My guilty fears discourage and approach to thee, but I praise thee for the blessed news that Jesus reconciles thee unto me. May the truth in Jesus illuminate in me all that is dark, established in me all that is wavering, wavering, Comfort in me all that is wretched. Accomplish in me all of thy goodness and glorify in me the name of Jesus. 
uphold my steps by thy word. Let no iniquity dominate me. Teach me that Christ cannot be the way if I am the end, that he cannot be redeemer if I am my own savior, that there can be no true union with him while the creature has my heart, that faith accepts him as redeemer and Lord or not at all. Father, I pray we surrender ourselves to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Man, I love coming here, just hanging out, singing praises to Jesus, then opening up the Word. So if you have a Bible, grab it. Uh, if you have your phones, turn it on and uh, open up to 1 Thessalonians 2. I don't know uh, how many of you are science nerds like I am, but I love science. Uh, researching things about creation, about our world. Um, I love science. I love seeing how God has orchestrated things. I don't know if you've researched much about the Earth's axis. Does anybody know anything about the Earth's axis? So we, um, we spin around an axis of 23.4 degrees. And this is important because it is truly what sustains life on earth. It gives us these moderate seasons so that there are no hot spots. It's responsible for our day and our night, our 24-hour period. It impacts the cycle of temperature and humidity. Our sea levels, they rise and fall depending on how the earth rotates. I mean, truly, our axis is important for a habitable earth. I mean, we've got certain planets that have zero tilt on their axis and, and the center of the, the planet is completely hot and then the, the, uh, the polars are ice cold and then, and then you've got some that are at a 90 degree angle and then one side never sees the sun. And so truly our axis is important to us having life. And the God of the cosmos, the God of the universe, spoke that into being. I mean, he set us on our axis and, and started spinning our world in a way that could sustain life. God has also created each human for a purpose, and that purpose is to center their lives rotate their lives around something. And that's what we're going to see here in 1 Thessalonians 2. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray for us. And then we're just going to dive in. And if you're, you've been with us for months and years, you know normally I like to have some really clean points, right? Three points and then a conclusion. Uh, today, we're going to just take a journey together through this passage because I think there's so much importance to 
what God is saying here through the Apostle Paul. So, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 12. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhort each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Man, there's so much goodness here, so let's pray and dive in. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy who your spirit pressed in on to write these words to the church in Thessalonica. And I pray, Lord, that we would hear these words and then that we would be able to apply them to our own lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So let's start with verse 9. Paul is saying something pretty unique here. He starts off by saying, For you remember, brothers, and it could also be sisters, our labor and toil. For we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel. I love this. I think there's something so beautiful about co-vocation and non-vocation, leaders and pastors sharing the gospel. This truly is what every single believer in Jesus is called to, to go therefore and make disciples, to go share the good news of Jesus. But I want to just talk about for a minute how that's not the only way. I think some people will read this verse and then have this mindset or this understanding that, that pastors should not get paid. They would say, oh, see, Paul said he's not getting paid, so no pastor should get paid. Well, that's actually, it's not actually the case in the whole of Scripture. It's, a, it's both. There are some times where Paul is advocating for pastors to, to get paid, and there's other times where he's saying that, they, that they've worked and toiled and labored, and, and they didn't take anything. And so, as we go through this, I want us to see that there are these passages, right? The Bible speaks about both of them. Luke 10, he sends out 72 disciples to go out and make disciples. He says, bring nothing. And then as you bring nothing and in your going, he says, let the people who you are ministering to provide for you. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.18, a worker is worth his wages. Then Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4, advocating for the church to support him and Barnabas in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 14. And he ends with this, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, for some reason, in this passage, in verse 9, Paul shares this because he wants nothing to hinder the Thessalonians from knowing Jesus. He doesn't want them. I think this is maybe a culturally appropriate thing that he's saying. And I think even in our context, we have a lot of churches that have abused this. I mean, we see on the news these pastors that are driving private jets and doing all these things about health, wealth, and happiness. And if you just give, then you're going to be blessed. And that's not the gospel. And so there are pastors that abuse this. And so then all of a sudden we think every pastor abuses this. 
You know, my family, we had the joy and the blessing to serve this church family. We started it nine years ago in our home. And for eight years, we have been able to not take a salary from the church and just serve this church through God providing through a business that God started for me through real estate. And so we didn't have to take a salary. So I look at this and I'm like, yes, amen, because we saw the joy of what it was like to not have to take a salary from our church family and that God provided for our family outside of the church family. It, it brought us joy. It grew our faith. It enabled our family to minister the gospel in places I never would have been able to. I rubbed shoulders with inspectors through, through selling houses, with, with title companies, with other realtors, with clients that I could sit and pray with and pray for because of the work I did outside the church family. And then in this season, God has also allowed the church to provide for our family. And so I'm looking at this going, yes and amen, and also there are other times and other seasons that God is providing through different church families. And so we don't look at this and we say, it's a one and only, this is the only thing it's saying. We look at the whole of scripture and we say, God is good. And there are moments for God to raise up leaders that are co-vocational and bivocational and lay vocational. Our leadership team are guys that don't receive anything from this church. Steve, AJ, Ed, they just serve our body through their love and their faithfulness and volunteering. And so we get the opportunity to look at this and say yes and amen. But I would like to ask the question, why? Why is Paul sharing this? Like, it's more than the what. You got to look at the heart behind what Paul is saying. Throughout verses 9 through 12, we see that Paul is speaking about this parental relationship and role as leaders. What we see is that throughout life, good parents, they sacrifice, they provide, they exhort, they challenge, they encourage their children. That was the mindset of Paul going into writing this, helping them understand that we came to fully serve and encourage and challenge and exhort your church family for the glory of God alone. And so they worked day and night striving to provide an income just so that they could provide for those that God has placed in their care. Now, I know that some of us sit in this room and we have a difficulty when it comes to us seeing God as our father. And I think the reason is, is because some of us have had really bad experiences with earthly fathers and earthly mothers. Maybe you experienced abuse. Maybe you experienced harm or pain or abandonment. And so when the Bible speaks as God is our father, I think often for some, it could raise up these feelings of then God is distant or God is going to abandon me or he is going to abuse me because of what my earthly parents did. I just want to say this. If that's you today, if you're struggling with seeing God as your father, I want you to, to listen to this. Louis Giglio says it this way. God is not the reflection of your earthly dad. He is the perfection of your earthly dad. John Piper says it like this. 
Jesus encourages us to pray by showing us that our heavenly father is better than our earthly father and will far more certainly give us good things than any human father would. Seeing God as our father is so important to our faith. God adopts us as his children in spite of us. It's, it's not that we have earned his adoption, but he adopts us while we were still enemies. He provides for us a way to salvation. He provides for us and sustains us in our lives and in our world. And he invites us to go, therefore, and make disciples. And so just as he has given us life, he invites us to go, therefore, and extend that invitation into life to others. And then we get to be spiritual parents to those that we are discipling. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I have received the grace of God. I understand who God is. And so now I am replicating that to the world around me. It's overflowing out of my life because of what God has done for me. And, and now I get to, to see those that are around me as my children in the Lord. So there's an investment here. And so as we're reading this passage, I want us to see this, this beautiful picture of Paul and Silas and Timothy as spiritual parents challenging and encouraging the Thessalonians. And what is the challenge? What is the thing that they are trying to get at? Like, if you had, like, you know, sending off your... Anybody send their kids off to college? Raise your hands. Right? You know that last moment... That's that really hard last moment where the tears are welling up and you're getting that thing in your throat, that little like knot, right? And your stomach's churning. And there's one thing that you have to say, the last thing that's like coming out of your mouth before they go into their dorm room or, or start getting in their car, right? That, that thing. This is what he says. As the picture of a spiritual parent, he says this, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Man, there's such weight and beauty in that phrase. But often I think we can read that and misunderstand it. Because what it's not saying is, is it's not saying you must live worthy so that you are called into his kingdom. Catch that. It's not saying you have to earn the favor of God so that he then calls you as his child. But what is it saying? See, we need to be students of the words and we of the word and we must let scripture interpret scripture and know the context. So let's break this down. Look at these three Greek words that form this sentence that Paul is saying. He says it like this. He says, "Walk in a manner worthy of God." But this means something. So there are these three words that are going to come up on the screen. There we go. And I couldn't pronounce those if I tried. Neither can any of you, right? So we're looking at that, and we're like, okay. So they all have a meaning behind them. Paul is writing in Greek right now. And, and we're, we're looking at this, and often in, things get lost in translation, from one language to another language. And so we're looking at this, and we have to go to the original text and see how it was written and see why it was written to see what it's saying. So the definitions are going to come up underneath it. So first, we have this word, to walk. This is where he says, walk in a manner. The definition here is to be, rotate comprehensively around, go full circle. So the first part of this word is the comprehensively around, and that intensifies the second part of this word, which means to walk properly, walk around. 
So there's this rotating around in a complete circuit going full circle. That's what he's meaning by walk in a manner. And then he uses this word worthy. Well, what does this word worthy mean? A-X-I-O-S. Worthily. It means a worth that matches value. This word is actually used a handful of times in the New Testament, a lot by Paul, once by Peter. And it means to be viewed in light of becoming something. There's a worth that's attributed to something. And so now that the worth is attributed to that item, it becomes infinitely more valuable. Did anybody ever collect like baseball cards or uh, kids' Pokemon cards are pretty, pretty hot right now? Um, anybody? Nobody. No collectors. Okay. Does anybody still have them? I still got the box up in my attic. It's great. Um, right? So growing up, there were these baseball cards. They had pictures. It was football and different sports, and they had pictures of the athletes on them. And, and what you would do is you would go buy a pack. And as you were going and buying a pack, you would then filter through them, and there was this book that told you how much these cards were worth. And so you would be flipping through these cards, trying to find the numbers to correlate to the make and model and all that stuff. And, and then finally, you got to the place where you found out how much the card was worth, and sometimes they were worth nothing. Most of the time, they were worth nothing. But every now and again, as you were flipping through these cards, a card would pop up to be worth, and this was big back then, like $5, $10, maybe even $50. Do you know what that did? It changed how we handled that card. It changed how we treated that card. All of a sudden, that particular card went into a plastic sleeve, and that card from the plastic sleeve would go into a hard case that was plastic. And then you would put that in a special place because you knew it was a special card. That card had worth. It had value. The other ones we would take and we'd put in our bike tires. And then as you were going, the spokes would make it sound like a motorcycle. That had no worth. But then there was something that had worth and it was infinitely more valuable. So, this word here, worthily, doesn't mean now you have to earn your worth. It means a worth is now attributed to something. Well, interesting. To rotate comprehensively around the worth that has been given, the value that has been given, by what? The last word. By God. God is the one that attributes worth to the item. So now our value has a worth the same as his value because he adopts us as his own. He adopts us as his children. So now all of a sudden, I don't know if you understand how like family units work, but, but as an adopted child, you become an equal heir to the estate. You, now everything that belongs to the parent belongs to the child. You get his kingdom. You get his glory. You get his worth. That's what the gospel is. When we talk about good news, you were once an enemy of God. Now you are a child of God. If he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, now you are a prince. You are a princess. And everything that belongs to the king belongs now to you. You get worth assigned to you. Because of what God has done for you. And so there is this encouragement 
this idea, this picture to rotate your life around the axis, which is Christ. The axis is constant, immovable. The axis is what gives life. And we get to just rotate our lives around the axis in which is Christ. That's the beauty of this picture. That's what Paul is trying to get them to understand and see. So now there is another option. We can rotate our lives around the constant axis of Jesus. And the Bible says that in that there is life. Or we can rotate our lives comprehensively around ourselves. You know what the Bible calls that? Selfish. Another word for that is pride. Now, that word pride comes up in Scripture often, but, but Paul actually, uh, every now and again, uses this word to articulate pride. He uses it in 1 Corinthians and Colossians. And the, the Greek word is physio, P-H-Y-S-I-O-O. And you know what it means? To be puffed up or overinflated. <laughs> so... I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the whole thing. At some point, I'm going to need some help. <laughs> Overinflated. Empty. This is what this word pride means. To be puffed up. When we center our lives on the axis of self. Me, I, if, if our lives are centered on that, the idea is that we exist in pride and we exist rotating around the axis, which is this balloon. Emptiness, overinflated. A life that is constantly living in pain and hurt and turmoil because we were not created to sustain our own access. That's not how God created us. God didn't create us strong enough so that we can rotate our lives around ourselves and actually survive. And the consequence of us rotating our lives around the axis of self is eternal damnation, it's death. That's what God says to Adam and Eve way back in the book of Genesis. Way back in the book of Genesis, he says, do not eat of these trees. Why? Because then you will surely die if you think that you can be your own God. That's what Adam and Eve were doing at that moment. They were saying, I want to survive. I want to live my life apart from God and his plan and his direction and his axis. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do whatever I want. He says, don't do this, but I'm going to go do it, and I'm going to eat it so that I can have the knowledge of good and evil, and I can be like God, and then we become overinflated, and we begin to rotate our lives around self. And the promise to rotating our lives around self is death. It is destruction. But the promise is if we keep our lives rotating around the axis, which is Christ then there will be life and it will be sustained not by us 
but by him and his power. Because otherwise, (laughs) we have nothing. And so when Paul, as this parental figure, is coming in to the Thessalonians, and he's seeing how they're living their lives, he's looking at them and saying, I see you often dabbling over here, trying to figure out and understand what it means to do this, but then you're also trying to do it on your own. You know the problems that arise in your life? You know uh, the work problems, the marriage problems, the parenting problems, the the neighborhood problems, the relationship problems, uh, the sin problems, the addiction problems. You know the things I'm talking about? Okay, so what we try to do is we try to manage those things by ourselves, figure it all out, conquer it, and then go to God and be like, hey, sorry about that. Oh yeah, you know, like for some reason we think we have to clean ourselves up before coming to God. We think we need to figure it all out before coming to God. But here's what the picture is, is that Paul is trying to get the Thessalonians to understand. You can't figure it out. You can't do it on your own. You weren't meant to do it on your own. And so the encouragement here is to live in a manner rotating your life comprehensively around the axis, which is Jesus. Center your lives on him. Does that mean that the problems go away? No. Does it mean that you're going to live perfectly in health, wealth, and happiness? No. But what it means is you have a secure foundation, an axis that is immovable, an axis that will never be set off course. And in it, you will receive life and life to the full. In it, there is joy. In it, there is peace in the midst of the storms. So in our lives, a hurricane may come, but that hurricane doesn't throw the axis off. In life, an earthquake may come, but it doesn't crumble the axis. That is what Paul is getting at here, and it's such a beautiful picture. So we have two options. Rotate our lives around ourselves, pride, emptiness, unstable, ungrounded, it's gonna bring us death and destruction, or to revolve our lives around God, constant, firm, strong, will bring joy and life. Now look at verse 12. We exhorted each of you, challenged each of you, encouraged each of you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Rotate your life comprehensively around the axis, which is God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I love this. This is, this is so cool. Calls here is a calling, a purpose, an identity. We, as broken sinners, as those who try to surround ourselves and ground our lives in ourself and pride, surrender all that we have and we begin to rotate around his axis. This gives us identity. This gives us a seat at his table. We share in his glory. We participate in his victory. We're about in a week to to have a game play on TV called the Super Bowl. And In the Super Bowl, there will be a winner and there will be a loser. The winners will get a trophy. They will get a Super Bowl ring. They will get bonuses, like 
the win will bring about, the victory will bring about a trophy and, and a ring and a bonus and all this other stuff, all these accolades, right? Do you know that it's not just the 53 players that are playing the game that actually get all that stuff? They actually receive, the team receives 150 rings to give out to staff members, to coaches, to trainers, to, to, to people that are on their practice squad. Like, like the whole team gets it. They get attributed the victory. We have to understand that when we're looking at this text and we're seeing what it says where he calls us into his own kingdom and his own glory is that we as his children who have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ and surround our lives and rotate our lives around him as our axis, we are invited into his victory. So that's not a future thing. That's a present thing. Right now in this very moment, even if you don't feel it, Right, Because some of you are in here today and you're feeling very burdened. You are sitting here feeling like you have lost the game. And I want you to know that if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, his victory has already become your victory. Like you sit here not as someone who is broken and deflated and sitting on the ground, but you sit here in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on his firm foundation. I don't know if you can't cheer and clap for that. I don't know what we're going to cheer and clap for in this place. You get the trophy. You get the ring. You get the bonus because of your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Not because you've earned it, but because he has already claimed and won the victory. He's done that on your behalf. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to invite Christian to come back on up, and Christian's going to start playing. And we're going to take a time to engage with this victory. The Bible gives us communion as a beautiful picture of what it means to be invited to his table. So towards the end of Jesus' life, he's hanging out with those closest to him, and he has a dinner. We know this as the Last Supper. And in this dinner, he stands up at some point and he takes some bread and he breaks it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we take communion, what are we doing? We're participating in the victory that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, knowing that when he rose from death to life, we too now have life in him and we look forward towards eternity claiming his victory, knowing that we're gonna spend eternity in life with him. And so we take the bread and then we dip it in the cup. And what is this cup? This cup that Jesus said is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He did all the work for the victory. And you get to come forward because of his invitation, because of his calling, because of his sovereignty. You get to come forward and you get to participate in his victory and share in his victory. This is the beauty of communion. And so what do we do in this time? We sit before him. Maybe you are like this balloon and you have just centered your life on Jesus, or on yourself. My request 
would be that in this moment, you confess. And what confession is, is an opportunity to go to God and say, I'm sorry. And so just like I let go of the balloon and it went all over the place, we have to let the sins that we carry and the pains and the hurts and the burdens, we have to let that go. And I know that sometimes it's hard because we don't know where we're gonna land. But God invites us to lay it all at his feet and receive his victory through the beauty of communion. And so you sit and you confess and you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for where I fell short. I'm sorry for where I sinned. I'm sorry for my addiction. I'm sorry for my pain. I'm sorry for my bitterness. I'm sorry for my hurt. And then you receive his forgiveness and you receive his victory. So when you come forward, you're coming forward as a victor. And you take the bread and you dip it in the juice as an act of worship unto the Lord for his name and for his glory. Making the commitment once again that you will center your lives around his axis. This is a remembrance of us centering his, our lives around him as our axis. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that you gave us thousands of years ago as an example where you took bread and you took a cup and, and you shared this with those closest to you and somehow that story has been passed down from generation to generation to generation to where we now get to participate and remember what you have done for us. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone right now here that has not placed their faith and their trust in you, that is still living their lives centered on themselves and their pride and their arrogance, God, I pray that they would be able to release that to you in this very moment. And maybe, just maybe, them coming forward to take communion would be their first act of faith in you, trusting you as their axis. God, if there are people here today that are struggling with addiction, with hurt, with pain, with bitterness, with anger. God, I pray that they right now would lay that at your feet through the power of your Holy Spirit and that they would come and partake in communion, walking in your victory over those things. As we keep our heads bowed, there is a prayer that I read this morning for myself that I want to read over us. This comes from the Valley of Vision. It says, Life-giving God, quicken me to call upon thy name, for my mind is ignorant, my thoughts vagrant, my affections earthly, my heart unbelieving, and only thy spirit can help my infirmities. I approach thee as father and friend, my portion forever, my exceeding joy, my strength of heart. I believe in these as the God of nature, the ordainer of providence, the sender of Jesus, my Savior. My guilty fears discourage and approach to thee, but I praise thee for the blessed news that Jesus reconciles thee unto me. May the truth in Jesus illuminate in me all that is dark, established in me all that is wavering, wavering. Comfort in me all that is wretched. Accomplish in me all of thy goodness and glorify in me the name of Jesus. 
Uphold my steps by thy word. Let no iniquity dominate me. Teach me that Christ cannot be the way if I am the end, that he cannot be redeemer if I am my own savior, that there can be no true union with him while the creature has my heart, that faith accepts him as redeemer and Lord or not at all. Father, I pray we surrender ourselves to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Man, I love coming here, just hanging out, singing praises to Jesus, then opening up the Word. So if you have a Bible, grab it. Uh, if you have your phones, turn it on and uh, open up to 1 Thessalonians 2. I don't know uh, how many of you are science nerds like I am, but I love science. Uh, researching things about creation, about our world. Um, I love science. I love seeing how God has orchestrated things. I don't know if you've researched much about the Earth's axis. Does anybody know anything about the Earth's axis? So we, um, we spin around an axis of 23.4 degrees. And this is important because it is truly what sustains life on earth. It gives us these moderate seasons so that there are no hot spots. It's responsible for our day and our night, our 24-hour period. It impacts the cycle of temperature and humidity. Our sea levels, they rise and fall depending on how the earth rotates. I mean, truly, our axis is important for a habitable earth. I mean, we've got certain planets that have zero tilt on their axis, and, and the center of the, the planet is completely hot, and then the, the, uh, the polars are ice cold, and then, and then you've got some that are at a 90-degree angle, and then one side never sees the sun. And so truly, our axis is important to us having life. And the God of the cosmos, the God of the universe, spoke that into being. I mean, he set us on our axis and, and started spinning our world in a way that could sustain life. God has also created each human for a purpose, and that purpose is to center their lives rotate their lives around something. And that's what we're going to see here in 1 Thessalonians 2. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to pray for us. And then we're just going to dive in. And if you're, you've been with us for months and years, you know normally I like to have some really clean points, right? Three points and then a conclusion. Uh, today, we're going to just take a journey together through this passage because I think there's so much importance to 
what God is saying here through the Apostle Paul. So, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 12. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhort each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Man, there's so much goodness here, so let's pray and dive in. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy who your spirit pressed in on to write these words to the church in Thessalonica. And I pray, Lord, that we would hear these words and then that we would be able to apply them to our own lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So let's start with verse 9. Paul is saying something pretty unique here. He starts off by saying, For you remember, brothers, and it could also be sisters, our labor and toil. For we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel. I love this. I think there's something so beautiful about co-vocation and non-vocation, leaders and pastors sharing the gospel. This truly is what every single believer in Jesus is called to, to go therefore and make disciples, to go share the good news of Jesus. But I want to just talk about for a minute how it's not the only way. I think some people will read this verse and then have this mindset or this understanding that that pastors should not get paid. They would say, oh, see, Paul said he's not getting paid, so no pastor should get paid. Well, that's actually, it's not actually the case in the whole of Scripture. It's, a, it's both. There are some times where Paul is advocating for pastors to, to get paid, and there's other times where he's saying that, they, that they've worked and toiled and labored, and, and they didn't take anything. And so as we go through this, I want us to see that there are these passages, right? The Bible speaks about both of them. Luke 10, he sends out 72 disciples to go out and make disciples. He says, bring nothing. And then as you bring nothing and in your going, he says, let the people who you are ministering to provide for you. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.18, a worker is worth his wages. Then Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25.4, advocating for the church to support him and Barnabas in 1 Corinthians 9.16-14. And he ends with this, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, for some reason, in this passage, in verse 9, Paul shares this because he wants nothing to hinder the Thessalonians from knowing Jesus. He doesn't want them. I think this is maybe a culturally appropriate thing that he's saying. And I think even in our context, we have a lot of churches that have abused this. I mean, we see on the news these pastors that are driving private jets and doing all these things about health, wealth, and happiness. And if you just give, then you're going to be blessed. And that's not the gospel. And so there are pastors that abuse this. And so then all of a sudden we think every pastor abuses this. 
You know, my family, we had the joy and the blessing to serve this church family. We started it nine years ago in our home. And for eight years, we have been able to not take a salary from the church and just serve this church through God providing through a business that God started for me through real estate. And so we didn't have to take a salary. So I look at this and I'm like, yes, amen, because we saw the joy of what it was like to not have to take a salary from our church family and that God provided for our family outside of the church family. It, it brought us joy. It grew our faith. It enabled our family to minister the gospel in places I never would have been able to. I rubbed shoulders with inspectors through, through selling houses, with, with title companies, with other realtors, with clients that I could sit and pray with and pray for because of the work I did outside the church family. And then in this season, God has also allowed the church to provide for our family. And so I'm looking at this going, yes and amen, and also there are other times and other seasons that God is providing through different church families. And so we don't look at this and we say, it's a one and only, this is the only thing it's saying. We look at the whole of scripture and we say, God is good. And there are moments for God to raise up leaders that are co-vocational and bivocational and lay vocational. Our leadership team are guys that don't receive anything from this church. Steve, AJ, Ed, they just serve our body through their love and their faithfulness and volunteering. And so we get the opportunity to look at this and say yes and amen. But I would like to ask the question, why? Why is Paul sharing this? Like, it's more than the what. You got to look at the heart behind what Paul is saying. Throughout verses 9 through 12, we see that Paul is speaking about this parental relationship and role as leaders. What we see is that throughout life, good parents, they sacrifice, they provide, they exhort, they challenge, they encourage their children. That was the mindset of Paul going into writing this, helping them understand that we came to fully serve and encourage and challenge and exhort your church family for the glory of God alone. And so they worked day and night striving to provide an income just so that they could provide for those that God has placed in their care. Now, I know that some of us sit in this room and we have a difficulty when it comes to us seeing God as our Father. And I think the reason is, is because some of us have had really bad experiences with earthly fathers and earthly mothers. Maybe you experienced abuse. Maybe you experienced harm or pain or abandonment. And so when the Bible speaks as God is our father, I think often for some, it could raise up these feelings of then God is distant or God is going to abandon me or he is going to abuse me because of what my earthly parents did. I just want to say this, if that's you today, if you're struggling with seeing God as your father, I want you to, to listen to this. Louis Giglio says it this way, God is not the reflection of your earthly dad. He is the perfection of your earthly dad. John Piper says it like this, 
Jesus encourages us to pray by showing us that our heavenly father is better than our earthly father and will far more certainly give us good things than any human father would. Seeing God as our father is so important to our faith. God adopts us as his children in spite of us. It's it's not that we have earned his adoption, but he adopts us while we were still enemies. He provides for us a way to salvation. He provides for us and sustains us in our lives and in our world. And he invites us to go therefore and make disciples. And so just as he has given us life, he invites us to go therefore and extend that invitation into life to others. And then we get to be spiritual parents to those that we are discipling. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I have received the grace of God. I understand who God is. And so now I am replicating that to the world around me. It's overflowing out of my life because of what God has done for me. And and now I get to, to see those that are around me as my children in the Lord. So there's an investment here. And so as we're reading this passage, I want us to see this this beautiful picture of Paul and Silas and Timothy as spiritual parents challenging and encouraging the Thessalonians. And what is the challenge? What is the thing that they are trying to get at? Like if you had like, you know, sending off your, anybody send their kids off to college? Raise your hands. Right? You know that last moment? That's that really hard last moment where the tears are welling up and you're getting that thing in your throat, that little like knot, right? And your stomach's churning. And there's one thing that you have to say, the last thing that's like coming out of your mouth before they go into their dorm room or, or start getting in their car, right? That, that thing. This is what he says. As the picture of a spiritual parent, he says this, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Man, there's such weight and beauty in that phrase. But often I think we can read that and misunderstand it. Because what it's not saying is is it's not saying you must live worthy so that you are called into his kingdom. Catch that. It's not saying you have to earn the favor of God so that he then calls you as his child. But what is it saying? See, we need to be students of the words and we of the word and we must let scripture interpret scripture and know the context. So let's break this down. Look at these three Greek words that form this sentence that Paul is saying. He says it like this. He says, "Walk in a manner worthy of God." But this means something. So there are these three words that are going to come up on the screen. There we go. And I couldn't pronounce those if I tried. Neither can any of you, right? So we're looking at that, and we're like, okay. So they all have a meaning behind them. Paul is writing in Greek right now. And, and we're, we're looking at this, and often in, things get lost in translation from one language to another language. And so we're looking at this, and we have to go to the original text and see how it was written and see why it was written to see what it's saying. So the definitions are going to come up underneath it. So first, we have this word, to walk. This is where he says, walk in a manner. The definition here is to be, rotate comprehensively around, go full circle. So the first part of this word is the comprehensively around, and that intensifies the second part of this word, which means to walk properly, walk around. 
So there's this rotating around in a complete circuit going full circle. That's what he's meaning by walk in a manner. And then he uses this word worthy. Well, what does this word worthy mean? A-X-I-O-S. Worthily. It means a worth that matches value. This word is actually used a handful of times in the New Testament, a lot by Paul, once by Peter. And it means to be viewed in light of becoming something. There's a worth that's attributed to something. And so now that the worth is attributed to that item, it becomes infinitely more valuable. Did anybody ever collect like baseball cards or uh, kids' Pokemon cards are pretty, pretty hot right now? Um, anybody? Nobody. No collectors. Okay. Does anybody still have them? I still got the box up in my attic. It's great. Um, right? So growing up, there were these baseball cards. They had pictures. It was football and different sports, and they had pictures of the athletes on them. And, and what you would do is you would go buy a pack. And as you were going and buying a pack, you would then filter through them, and there was this book that told you how much these cards were worth. And so you would be flipping through these cards, trying to find the numbers to correlate to the make and model and all that stuff. And, and then finally, you got to the place where you found out how much the card was worth, and sometimes they were worth nothing. Most of the time, they were worth nothing. But every now and again, as you were flipping through these cards, a card would pop up to be worth, and this was big back then, like $5, $10, maybe even $50. Do you know what that did? It changed how we handled that card. It changed how we treated that card. All of a sudden, that particular card went into a plastic sleeve, and that card from the plastic sleeve would go into a hard case that was plastic. And then you would put that in a special place because you knew it was a special card. That card had worth. It had value. The other ones we would take and we'd put in our bike tires. And then as you were going, the spokes would make it sound like a motorcycle. That had no worth. But then there was something that had worth and it was infinitely more valuable. So, this word here, worthily, doesn't mean now you have to earn your worth. It means a worth is now attributed to something. Well, interesting. To rotate comprehensively around the worth that has been given, the value that has been given, by what? The last word. By God. God is the one that attributes worth to the item. So now our value has a worth the same as his value because he adopts us as his own. He adopts us as his children. So now all of a sudden, I don't know if you understand how like family units work, but, but as an adopted child, you become an equal heir to the estate. You, now everything that belongs to the parent belongs to the child. You get his kingdom. You get his glory. You get his worth. That's what the gospel is. When we talk about good news, you were once an enemy of God. Now you are a child of God. If he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, now you are a prince. You are a princess. And everything that belongs to the king belongs now to you. You get worth assigned to you. Because of what God has done for you. And so there is this encouragement 
this idea, this picture to rotate your life around the axis, which is Christ. The axis is constant, immovable. The axis is what gives life. And we get to just rotate our lives around the axis in which is Christ. That's the beauty of this picture. That's what Paul is trying to get them to understand and see. So now there is another option. We can rotate our lives around the constant axis of Jesus. And the Bible says that in that there is life. Or we can rotate our lives comprehensively around ourselves. You know what the Bible calls that? Selfish. Another word for that is pride. Now, that word pride comes up in Scripture often, but, but Paul actually, uh, every now and again, uses this word to articulate pride. He uses it in 1 Corinthians and Colossians. And the, the Greek word is physio, P-H-Y-S-I-O-O. And you know what it means? To be puffed up or overinflated. <laughs> so, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do the whole thing. At some point, I'm going to need some help. Overinflated, empty. This is what this word pride means to be puffed up. When we center our lives on the axis of self, me, I, if, if our lives are centered on that, the idea is that we exist in pride and we exist rotating around the axis, which is this balloon. Emptiness, overinflated. A life that is constantly living in pain and hurt and turmoil because we were not created to sustain our own axis. That's not how God created us. God didn't create us strong enough so that we can rotate our lives around ourselves and actually survive. And the consequence of us rotating our lives around the axis of self is eternal damnation. It's death. That's what God says to Adam and Eve way back in the book of Genesis. Way back in the book of Genesis, he says, do not eat of these trees. Why? Because then you will surely die if you think that you can be your own God. That's what Adam and Eve were doing at that moment. They were saying, I want to survive. I want to live my life apart from God and his plan and his direction and his axis. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do whatever I want. He says, don't do this, but I'm going to go do it and I'm going to eat it so that I can have the knowledge of good and evil and I could be like God. And then we become overinflated and we begin to rotate our lives around self. And the promise to rotating our lives around self is death. It is destruction. But the promise is if we keep our lives rotating around the axis, which is Christ, then there will be life. And it will be sustained not by us, 
but by him and his power. Because otherwise, (laughs) we have nothing. And so when Paul, as this parental figure, is coming in to the Thessalonians, and he's seeing how they're living their lives, he's looking at them and saying, I see you often dabbling over here, trying to figure out and understand what it means to do this, but then you're also trying to do it on your own. You know the problems that arise in your life? You know uh, the work problems, the marriage problems, the parenting problems, the the neighborhood problems, the relationship problems, uh, the sin problems, the addiction problems. You know the things I'm talking about? Okay, so what we try to do is we try to manage those things by ourselves, figure it all out, conquer it, and then go to God and be like, hey, sorry about that. Oh yeah, you know, like for some reason we think we have to clean ourselves up before coming to God. We think we need to figure it all out before coming to God. But here's what the picture is, is that Paul is trying to get the Thessalonians to understand. You can't figure it out. You can't do it on your own. You weren't meant to do it on your own. And so the encouragement here is to live in a manner rotating your life comprehensively around the axis, which is Jesus. Center your lives on him. Does that mean that the problems go away? No. Does it mean that you're going to live perfectly in health, wealth, and happiness? No. But what it means is you have a secure foundation, an axis that is immovable, an axis that will never be set off course. And in it, you will receive life and life to the full. In it, there is joy. In it, there is peace in the midst of the storms. So in our lives, a hurricane may come, but that hurricane doesn't throw the axis off. In life, an earthquake may come, but it doesn't crumble the axis. That is what Paul is getting at here, and it's such a beautiful picture. So we have two options. Rotate our lives around ourselves, pride, emptiness, unstable, ungrounded. It's going to bring us death and destruction. Or to revolve our lives around God, constant, firm, strong, will bring joy and life. Now look at verse 12. We exhorted each of you, challenged each of you, encouraged each of you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Rotate your life comprehensively around the axis, which is God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I love this. This is, this is so cool. Calls here is a calling, a purpose, an identity. We, as broken sinners, as those who try to surround ourselves and ground our lives in ourself and pride, surrender all that we have, and we begin to rotate around his axis. This gives us identity. This gives us a seat at his table. We share in his glory. We participate in his victory. We're about in a week to, to have a game play on TV called the Super Bowl. And... In the Super Bowl, there will be a winner and there will be a loser. The winners will get a trophy. They will get a Super Bowl ring. They will get bonuses 
Like the win will bring about, the victory will bring about a trophy and, and a ring and a bonus and all this other stuff, all these accolades, right? Do you know that it's not just the 53 players that are playing the game that actually get all that stuff? They actually receive, the team receives 150 rings to give out to staff members, to coaches, to trainers, to, to the people that are on their practice squad. Like, like the whole team gets it. They get attributed the victory. We have to understand that when we're looking at this text and we're seeing what it says where he calls us into his own kingdom and his own glory is that we as his children who have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ and surround our lives and rotate our lives around him as our axis, we are invited into his victory. So that's not a future thing. That's a present thing. Right now in this very moment, even if you don't feel it, Right, Because some of you are in here today and you're feeling very burdened. You are sitting here feeling like you have lost the game. And I want you to know that if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, his victory has already become your victory. Like you sit here not as someone who is broken and deflated and sitting on the ground, but you sit here in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords on his firm foundation. I don't know if you can't cheer and clap for that. I don't know what we're going to cheer and clap for in this place. You get the trophy. You get the ring. You get the bonus because of your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Not because you've earned it, but because he has already claimed and won the victory. He's done that on your behalf. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to invite Christian to come back on up, and Christian's going to start playing. And we're going to take a time to engage with this victory. The Bible gives us communion as a beautiful picture of what it means to be invited to his table. So towards the end of Jesus' life, he's hanging out with those closest to him, and he has a dinner. We know this as the Last Supper. And in this dinner, he stands up at some point and he takes some bread and he breaks it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we take communion, what are we doing? We're participating in the victory that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, knowing that when he rose from death to life, we too now have life in him and we look forward towards eternity claiming his victory, knowing that we're gonna spend eternity in life with him. And so we take the bread and then we dip it in the cup. And what is this cup? This cup that Jesus said is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He did all the work for the victory. And you get to come forward because of his invitation, because of his calling, because of his sovereignty. You get to come forward and you get to participate in his victory and share in his victory. This is the beauty of communion. And so what do we do in this time? We sit before him. Maybe you are like this balloon and you have just centered your life on Jesus, or on yourself. My request 
would be that in this moment, you confess. And what confession is, is an opportunity to go to God and say, I'm sorry. And so just like I let go of the balloon and it went all over the place, we have to let the sins that we carry and the pains and the hurts and the burdens, we have to let that go. And I know that sometimes it's hard because we don't know where we're gonna land, but God invites us to lay it all at his feet and receive his victory through the beauty of communion. And so you sit and you confess and you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for where I fell short. I'm sorry for where I sinned. I'm sorry for my addiction. I'm sorry for my pain. I'm sorry for my bitterness. I'm sorry for my hurt. And then you receive his forgiveness and you receive his victory. So when you come forward, you're coming forward as a victor. And you take the bread and you dip it in the juice as an act of worship unto the Lord for his name and for his glory. Making the commitment once again that you will center your lives around his axis. This is a remembrance of us centering his, our lives around him as our axis. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that you gave us thousands of years ago as an example where you took bread and you took a cup and, and you shared this with those closest to you and somehow that story has been passed down from generation to generation to generation to where we now get to participate and remember what you have done for us. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone right now here that has not placed their faith and their trust in you, that is still living their lives centered on themselves and their pride and their arrogance, God, I pray that they would be able to release that to you in this very moment. And maybe, just maybe, them coming forward to take communion would be their first act of faith in you, trusting you as their axis. God, if there are people here today that are struggling with addiction, with hurt, with pain, with bitterness, with anger, God, I pray that they right now would lay that at your feet through the power of your Holy Spirit and that they would come and partake in communion, walking in your victory over those things. As we keep our heads bowed, there is a prayer that I read this morning for myself that I want to read over us. This comes from the Valley of Vision. It says, life-giving God, quicken me to call upon thy name, for my mind is ignorant, my thoughts vagrant, my affections earthly, my heart unbelieving, and only thy spirit can help my infirmities. I approach thee as father and friend, my portion forever, my exceeding joy, my strength of heart, I believe in these as the God of nature, the ordainer of providence, the sender of Jesus, my Savior. My guilty fears discourage and approach to thee, but I praise thee for the blessed news that Jesus reconciles thee unto me. May the truth in Jesus illuminate in me all that is dark, established in me all that is wavering, wavering, Comfort in me all that is wretched. Accomplish in me all of thy goodness and glorify in me the name of Jesus. 
Uphold my steps by thy word. Let no iniquity dominate me. Teach me that Christ cannot be the way if I am the end, that he cannot be redeemer if I am my own savior, that there can be no true union with him while the creature has my heart, that faith accepts him as redeemer and Lord or not at all. Father, I pray we surrender ourselves to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. everybody doing? Good, good. Man, I love coming here, just hanging out, singing praises to Jesus, then opening up the Word. So if you have a Bible, grab it. Uh, If you have your phones, turn it on and uh, open up to 1 Thessalonians 2. I don't know uh, how many of you are science nerds like I am, but I love researching things about creation, about our world. Um, I love science. I love seeing how God has orchestrated things. I don't know if you've researched much about the Earth's axis. Does anybody know anything about the Earth's axis? So we, um, we spin around an axis of 23.4 degrees. And this is important because it is truly what sustains life on earth. It gives us these moderate seasons so that there are no hot spots. It's responsible for our day and our night, our 24-hour period. It impacts the cycle of temperature and humidity. Our sea levels, they rise and fall depending on how the earth rotates. I mean, truly, our axis is important for a habitable earth. I mean, we've got certain planets that have zero tilt on their axis, and and the center of the the planet is completely hot, and then the the polars are ice cold, and then then you've got some that are at a 90-degree angle, and then one side never sees the sun. And so truly, our axis is important to us having life. And the God of the cosmos, the God of the universe, spoke that into being. I mean, he set us on our axis and and started spinning our world in a way that could sustain life. God has also created each human for a purpose, and that purpose is to center their lives rotate their lives around something. And that's what we're going to see here in 1 Thessalonians 2. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray for us. And then we're just going to dive in. And if you're, you've been with us for months and years, you know normally I like to have some really clean points, right? Three points and then a conclusion. Uh, today, we're going to just take a journey together through this passage because I think there's so much importance to 
what God is saying here through the Apostle Paul. So, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 12. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhort each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Man, there's so much goodness here, so let's pray and dive in. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy who your spirit pressed in on to write these words to the church in Thessalonica. And I pray, Lord, that we would hear these words and then that we would be able to apply them to our own lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you. We thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So let's start with verse 9. Paul is saying something pretty unique here. He starts off by saying, For you remember, brothers, and it could also be sisters, our labor and toil. For we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel. I love this. I think there's something so beautiful about co-vocation and non-vocation, leaders and pastors sharing the gospel. This truly is what every single believer in Jesus is called to, to go therefore and make disciples, to go share the good news of Jesus. But I want to just talk about for a minute how that's not the only way. I think some people will read this verse and then have this mindset or this understanding that, that pastors should not get paid. They would say, oh, see, Paul said he's not getting paid, so no pastor should get paid. Well, that's actually, it's not actually the case in the whole of Scripture. It's, a, it's both. There are some times where Paul is advocating for pastors to, to get paid, and there's other times where he's saying that, they, that they've worked and toiled and labored, and, and they didn't take anything. And so, as we go through this, I want us to see that there are these passages, right? The Bible speaks about both of them. Luke 10, he sends out 72 disciples to go out and make disciples. He says, bring nothing. And then as you bring nothing and in your going, he says, let the people who you are ministering to provide for you. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.18, a worker is worth his wages. Then Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4, advocating for the church to support him and Barnabas in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 through 14. And he ends with this, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, for some reason, in this passage, in verse 9, Paul shares this because he wants nothing to hinder the Thessalonians from knowing Jesus. He doesn't want them. I think this is maybe a culturally appropriate thing that he's saying. And I think even in our context, we have a lot of churches that have abused this. I mean, we see on the news these pastors that are driving private jets and doing all these things about health, wealth, and happiness. And if you just give, then you're going to be blessed. And that's not the gospel. And so there are pastors that abuse this. And so then all of a sudden we think every pastor abuses this. 
You know, my family, we had the joy and the blessing to serve this church family. We started it nine years ago in our home. And for eight years, we have been able to not take a salary from the church and just serve this church through God providing through a business that God started for me through real estate. And so we didn't have to take a salary. So I look at this and I'm like, yes, amen, because we saw the joy of what it was like to not have to take a salary from our church family and that God provided for our family outside of the church family. It, it brought us joy. It grew our faith. It enabled our family to minister the gospel in places I never would have been able to. I rubbed shoulders with inspectors through, through selling houses, with, with title companies, with other realtors, with clients that I could sit and pray with and pray for because of the work I did outside the church family. And then in this season, God has also allowed the church to provide for our family. And so I'm looking at this going, yes and amen, and also there are other times and other seasons that God is providing through different church families. And so we don't look at this and we say, it's a one and only, this is the only thing it's saying. We look at the whole of scripture and we say, God is good. And there are moments for God to raise up leaders that are co-vocational and bivocational and lay vocational. Our leadership team are guys that don't receive anything from this church. Steve, AJ, Ed, they just serve our body through their love and their faithfulness and volunteering. And so we get the opportunity to look at this and say yes and amen. But I would like to ask the question, why? Why is Paul sharing this? Like, it's more than the what. You got to look at the heart behind what Paul is saying. Throughout verses 9 through 12, we see that Paul is speaking about this parental relationship and role as leaders. What we see is that throughout life, good parents, 